Well, Merry Christmas. I know maybe I was a little early on that because Thanksgiving just happened, but it is Advent and I am up here wearing red pants and I think we could do better. So, hey, Merry Christmas. <clears throat> That's it right there. You know, Advent is the season of Christmas. It's these four Sundays that run up to Christmas where we get to celebrate and commemorate everything that happened in this story. And it is an amazing story, isn't it? I mean, if you think about it, Mary and Joseph, two kids in the Jewish suburbs with their whole lives ahead of them. Uh, Joseph comes from a good family. Mary's got some great people surrounding her. And everything looks pretty predictable in a good way until, until something happens, right? What happens? Well, an angel shows up to Mary. And I got to tell you, that was as surprising to her as it would be if an angel showed up to you. Absolutely shocking. And an angel comes with crazy shocking news that despite her virginal state, that she is going to be pregnant. And even more, that the baby she's going to have is going to be the savior. I mean, this is a crazy story from the get-go. And I'm sure she tells Joseph all these things, but there had never been an immaculate conception before. And so Joseph has some doubts, right? He likes her a lot, but he's just not quite sure how this whole thing is shaking out. So Joseph, in his mind, decides that he is going to quietly divorce her. Right? He just can't handle this. This is a little too crazy for him. You know? So what happens to Joseph? Another angel shows up to Joseph and says, listen, man, it's true. Everything, I don't know if those are the exact words, but everything that she told you is true. I don't think angels are that casual, but bear with me on this. And so Joseph hears this from an angel and decides to stay with her. And so now Mary and Joseph remain together. Now all this happens when, when uh, Israel's under the occupation and the rule of Rome. And the Roman emperor, Augustus, decides he wants to know exactly how many people are there. So he decrees that there will be a census and everyone has to go to their ancestral home. Joseph comes from the line of David. David and Goliath, David. King David. David who wrote so many of the Psalms, the warrior poet. It's a prestigious family to be a part of. And so he is going to have to travel now with Mary from where they live in Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem. And they do. And what happens when they're in Bethlehem? A baby is born. Jesus. And I love how it's described in Luke 2-7 that Mary wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available to them. And this takes us to our Advent text, which is Luke 2, 8-14. It's in your worship guides. You've got phones. You can read it there or on the screen. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Joseph and Mary traveling to his ancestral homes, having a baby, and being visited by a collection of shepherds. 
It's an incredible story of a remarkable journey. And I wonder if some of you might have been on a journey recently. Did anybody here travel for Thanksgiving? Yeah, I see some hands up. My wife and I, Jen and I, and our six kids went to my ancestral homes in Virginia. Six kids, right. And, uh, and we crammed in a Honda, Honda Odyssey, which is a great ride as far as those things go. It's got the, you know, keeps you in your lane when you're going. 24 hours of driving there and back. And it was a pretty epic journey. It's a pretty great time. Um, and, and when we got there, we did another journey. We did one of those turkey trots on Thanksgiving morning. Anybody do a turkey trot? Yeah? It's, it's, a little, it's a little insane on Thanksgiving morning to do a 5K. That's what these are. They're 5Ks, three miles. I think they were invented by someone who wanted everyone out from underfoot for the making of the food on Thanksgiving morning. But we did a turkey trot. It was so much fun. And, and I didn't get a picture this year, but the last one that we did, this was us at the last one. This is me and my, my wife and our kids and my brother and his wife and their kids. And it turns out in this picture that both my wife and my sister-in-law are pregnant. Pregnant for that turkey trot, which is crazy because... Firsthand, I know running a 5K is no joke. You know, it takes some work. But there is nothing more impressive, I think, than watching a pregnant woman knock out a 5K, right? I mean, that is a serious piece of work right there that they did. And I am so impressed. And my wife was midterm in this picture for this race, which is good because I've never been pregnant, but I have watched her six times over. And there is no running that happens later in, in pregnancy. She would have you know she did squats and worked out up until the day the baby was born every time. But, um, but walking at the end seems pretty laborious, right? I mean, it's hard work when you're pregnant. Now, you know, Mary and Joseph, they had a journey of their own to do. And they did not have a Honda Odyssey to get them where they were going. And they had some distance to cover. They didn't just do a 5K, though. No, to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem. In fact, you can even go and do this, what we think was the journey that they went on. They had to do 30 turkey trots, back to back, 30, about 90 miles that they had to cover. They had to go over some mountains. It was difficult terrain. It was a hard, a hard journey. And here Joseph and his pregnant wife have to cover that ground so that they can get to the place that they had to go. But that's not the only part of this journey that was difficult for them. Because when I did this trek, when I went to my family home, do you know who I got to see when I was there? Yeah, I, I got to see my family, my cousins. We got a picture up here. 48 people gathered at my family's house, my parents' house. They didn't all get in the picture. Some had to leave early. But my cousins, my, my aunts, my uncles, my granddad's sitting right there in the middle. My parents are there. My dodgy brother is there. And I say he's my dodgy brother. He's a pastor. But I say he's dodgy because when he sent me this photo, look at what he put in the very back row if you didn't already see it. Yeah. He thought he was being pretty funny with that, right? He was like, yeah, sure, I'll give you the picture, Nathan. And I will get him back. Uh, but yeah, all 48 of us were gathered. I got to see my family. And it was such a sweet time that we had up there. But did you notice who's not in the story for Mary and Joseph? Their family's not in the story. We don't read about Joseph's family, even though we're going to Joseph's ancestral home. Why is that? You know, it doesn't tell us in the Bible why. And I'm not sure exactly. There's a little bit of speculation going on in my head, but I've been thinking about it for weeks. And I keep thinking back to the passage in Matthew where it says that Joseph decided to quietly divorce her. Because, you know, pregnancy outside of wedlock in that culture at that time 
was a huge stigma, a source of shame and embarrassment. And Joseph couldn't handle it until the angel intervened in his life and helped reset him. But his family, I don't know if they had those angels show up. And so I wonder, I wonder for them, if they just decided to divorce Mary and Joseph, leaving them to come to a town where surely there would have been family, and instead to come by themselves. And I don't know that for sure, but what I do know is that they were them alone, Mary, Joseph, and then Jesus, until the shepherds came to visit them. And having welcomed six of my own children into the world, I got to tell you, being alone is not where you want to be when you have a new baby. And yet it's where they were. And this is the story of the arrival of Jesus. But this is also the story of Mary and Joseph in a tricky place, incredibly inconvenienced and embarrassed and maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit ashamed dealing with a lot of stuff. And as I've thought about this story over the last month, I've come up with a lot of questions that I have about it. A lot of questions that I suspect that they had about this. Questions that I imagine that they were probably asking God along the way. Questions really revolving around why, and even more of a why now. Questions like, why now, God? Couldn't you have sent the angel just the moment after we were married. So we didn't have to deal with all the looks, all the comments, all the doubts, all the people embarrassing us and trying to shame us. I mean, why now, God? Why couldn't you have sent this baby when Israel wasn't occupied, when somebody else wasn't in control of everything we did quite this way? It's a lot scarier this way. Why now? God, couldn't you have sent this kid three months earlier or three months later? So that we didn't have this journey to do. We could have had the baby at home, surrounded by our community. And I wonder if Mary might have asked, God, why now? I wish my mom could have been here, or my aunt, but they're in their own census cities. And I'm alone, alone for childbirth for the first time. I would have loved somebody here that loved me. And yet, instead of the perfect start to their marriage, instead of the perfect pregnancy plan come to bear, you know what they got? They got to see the Savior of the world born right there in that manger. Mary and Joseph, I wonder if their expectations might have been a little too low, right? And if God had only met the expectations they had had, that would have been, would have been too little. Instead, God gave them a joy in excess of those expectations. Instead, God confounded their expectations and delivered them something bigger than their greatest dreams. And their joy came from God delivering something so much bigger. And their joy came from God calling them into his plans and purposes, however inconvenient they might have been. You know, babies do have a way of inconveniencing ourselves, or us, and not just at Christmas, right? I mean, I know this firsthand, having seen six of them show up in my own life. So I've told you before, my, my wife and I, we actually met in Namibia on a mission trip with Northland many years ago. She lived in St. Pete, I lived in, in Winter Park. And so when we started dating, 
we could see each other on the weekends when we could. We talked on the phone a lot. We sent a lot of messages. And on one of our very first dates, we talked about having kids together, which I do not recommend if you are newly dating someone. That is not a great subject of conversation. But it worked out okay for us. And we came up with this plan for ourselves. Because, you know, between the first time we saw each other and getting married, there was only one year and all that distance. And so we didn't actually know each other all that well. So we decided we'd get married and then we'd wait a few years before we had kids, right? It's a great plan. We could get to know each other. We could figure out what being married was like before we had to figure out what being parents was like. And it was an awesome plan for the month or so until we found out that Jen was pregnant. Yeah, that was a major shock and surprise to us. And, and okay, all right, but here we go. So we came up with new plans. We adjusted. We figured out how are we going to make all the ends meet. I owned my own business, and it was actually doing pretty well. Uh, and it was a lot of fun. My wife and I took jobs at, at ICS down the street in Winter Park, International Community School. Um, I started teaching at Valencia because we just didn't know, you know, babies are expensive, right? So we were trying to figure out how to make all the pieces come together, and we came up with a new plan that I was pretty excited about. And it was in motion, and things were good. And we were so supported here at Northland by the community that was around us. And then seven months into Jen's pregnancy, something happened very unexpected. I went to bed like any other night, but when I was sleeping, I had a dream. And in that dream, God spoke to me. Actual voice of God. And he said to me, Nathan, I need you to shut your business down because I have something new for you to do in the next 30 days and the business is in the way. What? I mean, I woke up like that and I was a little bit scared and a little bit confused. Okay, I was terrified and very confused. Like, what in the world just happened? And this was not a dream where I was like watching myself talk to God. This was like the fullness of my Everything was filled with the fullness of his voice directed at me. And I woke up with absolute clarity that God had just told me something. But there was a problem. And the problem was I was newly married to a very pregnant woman. And I did not know how this was going to go. Like, what do you do? That's, that's a tricky thing to say, hey, babe. So I wasn't sure what to do. And I turned. And she was already awake. She's a morning person and wakes up before me every single morning. And I looked at her and I went, darling, you look so beautiful this morning. You know, try to butter her up. And uh, she looked at me very smart and said, what's going on? And I went, uh, I was like, hey, you're not going to believe what just happened. But she did. And without missing a beat, she said, well, you got to do it. You got to do this. And I was like, Whew, all right, married the right person. This is good. This is good. And so I called my business partner, because that's right, that's another wrinkle. I had a business partner who was my best friend. And I said, hey, we should get lunch today, right? And he was like, yeah. So I said, hey, I'm going to get the pizza. Do you want the pizza? And he was like, yeah, I want the pizza. I said, great, you should get the pizza too. And by the way, I had a dream, and God told me to shut the company down. Ha, what do you think? <laughs> and, uh, and he was like, oh, okay. You know, that's weird, actually, because for months I've been thinking that God's been telling me that, that we should change something. Huh. Which was a shock to both of us because we'd spent years building this business up. And it was succeeding more than it ever had before. Lots of accolades, more and more clients. Things were going exactly the way you would hope when you have a business. And yet, do you know what we did that afternoon? 
We called all of our clients and told them, not just that we were shutting it down, but we told them why too. And those clients of ours who were believers were like, huh, okay, that's unusual, but cool. Good job following God. The other ones who were not though, were like, you are insane and maybe I'm glad that we are no longer doing business together. Um, because it was a crazy thing. So we told them all. But then there was a problem because I didn't know what came next. You know, God had said, I got something new for you to do, but I didn't know what it was. So I prayed a lot and worried a little and prayed some more and was like, God, help me out. And then the very next day I had a lunch planned with a dear friend of mine, long-standing lunch. Uh, my friend and a friend of many of you, Pastor Vernon Rainwater, our pastor emeritus here. And Vernon and I had lunch planned for this barbecue place. And so we, we sit down together and he's like, so what's up? And I'm like, dude, dude, dude. <laughs> You are not going to believe what just happened to me. And he's like, tell me. And I, I tell him the story. And he goes, Nathan, I know what you're supposed to do. And he kind of just leans back. And I'm like, don't lean back. Lean in and tell me what am I supposed to do? Because I have no idea. And he says, Nathan, you are supposed to work at Northland. And I was like, what? What? He's like, no, man, we have been praying for years looking for a person just like you. We've even said, we need someone like Nathan here. But we never actually asked you because you own your own business and you don't ask someone to shut their business down to come work at a church. And I thought, huh, that's really weird. Because you got to know, my mom's a pastor and told me hundreds and hundreds of times growing up that I would work at a church and that I should be a pastor. And you know what I told her every time? No, no way. Absolutely not. There's no way that's going to happen. And I built this other life instead. And then for Vernon to tell me that that's what I was supposed to do is not the thing I was expecting or even hoping to hear. So I said, Vernon, good word. Thanks for sharing that with me. Let me go pray about that for a little bit. Talk to some other people. See who else says, I've got a thing for you too. Went home, told my wife. She was like, huh, okay. But we kept talking. Vernon and I. He had me talk with some other people here. Meanwhile, nobody else is asking me to go talk with them. And more and more I realized that that was what I was supposed to do. And so 23 days after Vernon and I had that lunch, I started here, which was about 16 years ago in just a few months. And I got to tell you, I love being a pastor at North and I love being a pastor for you. But it was not my plan. Just like having six children, Definitely not my plan. These were not the plans that I had designed for myself. But you know what they are? They're better plans. These are better than the best dreams that I had dreamt for myself. And I am so glad that God called me into it because it has been an amazing thing to see his plans for me unveiled. Isn't it amazing how often God confounds our expectations? Isn't it amazing how often God calls us at incredibly scary and inconvenient times to follow him? And isn't it amazing that when we do, how often he gives us something better for ourselves than we could have ever engineered on our own? And you know what? God has done this in my life over and over again. And God has done this in stories in the Bible over and over again. I mean, think about the story of Noah, right? I mean, God says, hey, Noah, build a giant boat and fill it with animals. And by the way, nowhere near water. 
oh my gosh, I mean, that's so much work. Have you ever thought about how much work Noah had to do? And not just the work, but the whole time he's doing the work, people are making fun of him, calling him an idiot. And then what happened? The rain showed up. And that ark saved Noah and his family and saved them all. Or the story of, story of Moses. God said, Moses, free my people. So he went to Egypt and he led the people of Israel away in pretty amazing circumstances. But then what happens? The army of Egypt starts to follow them and there's nowhere for them to go. They're trapped by the sea until what does God do? He parts the waters and gives them safe passage through. Or the story of Gideon. Gideon's leading the army of Israel. They are facing the Midianites. And the Midianites have 135,000 soldiers. And Israel has 32,000. And if you're good at math, or even if you're not, those are not good odds that they are facing. But God says, Gideon, you've got too many people. You've got too many people. 32,000 is too many. Anybody who's scared, let them go. And so suddenly, suddenly, the army is 10,000. And now it's 10,000 against 135,000. The Midianites are thrilled about this, by the way. And again, God says, you got too many people still. And he whittles it down until Gideon has an army of 300 against 135,000 people. And what does God do? What does God do? God leads them to the most impossible, improbable, unlikely victory so that no one can say they did it for themselves, but so that everyone, including us, can see the things that God does. And Mary and Joseph, Mary and Joseph, with a life planned for themselves, marriage, a family eventually, stable and quiet and hopeful, and instead, and instead, look at what God did. But what a thing that he did. He brought to them Jesus as a baby. Without any of the things they would have wanted, he gave them everything that they and everything that the world needed. And you know what? Over and over again, this is what God does, right? He intercedes in our lives in a way that is incredibly inconvenient and incredibly unexpected. And that often, so often, feels like it's coming at the wrong time. But God doesn't deal in wrong times, even though it feels that way. Even when things are unexpected and inconvenient, God moves at just the right times to him. And here's how I know this, because what would the right time be to us? You know, when would it ever actually be the right time to go from the things that you're doing, the plans that you've made, the dreams that you have, and to set them aside and instead Step into the unknown, to something scary, something confusing, something uncertain. When would it be the right time to make that step? Well, gosh, I'm not sure it ever would be. I suspect that the sort of moves that we really need in our lives, I suspect that those would always be the kind of thing that we say, you know what, I'll actually do that tomorrow. That seems like a good thing for tomorrow, right? I'm not sure it would ever be the right time. I love the way Henry Ford presented this. Henry Ford, who you know, founded Ford Autos, pretty much the father of the modern automobile industry, he said, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. 
right? Nobody at the time was saying anything but what I need is a horse that's a little bit faster, a little bit stronger, that maybe costs me a little bit less and maybe makes a little bit mess. That's, that's all I want. I just want a better horse. But he realized what people actually needed was something different. And isn't that how this really often works? That the thing that we really need isn't just a slightly better version of what we have. Instead, it's something that is incredibly disruptive and inconvenient and unexpected. And I get why we don't do that on our own, because from our vantage, we just can't see much more than where we are and where we've been. And so what do we do? Well, here's where where I was, and here's where I am. And so my next step is just in the same direction. But God's not limited by our vantage, is he? God can see things from his vantage. And he has got a much fuller view of the path that we're on, of the plans that we have. Which means that sometimes God can see that our plans are actually a little bit dangerous. And they might be leading us to destruction. Sometimes God can see that the plans that we've made for ourselves might just be leading us to disappointment. But you know, from that vantage, it's not just that God can see our plans. It's also that he can see us more fully than we can see ourselves. And I got to tell you, God sees you. He's pretty into you. He's pretty excited about you. He may not be as excited about your plans, though. But that's okay, because you know what he's got? He's got better plans for you. A desire to take you from where you are to where you should be. Never mind the fact that you're aiming in a different direction right now. God is happy to confound our plans because he is happy to bring us his delights through his plans and purposes for us. Because God has a better plan. God has a better path for you. God has something right for us, right for you. Even though sometimes, sometimes it might feel like it's coming at the wrong time. But you know what? It is never the wrong time for the right thing, is it? It is never the wrong time for the right thing. I was expecting a successful career as an entrepreneur, as an artist, doing life with my wife, with some kids, and this was going to be an exciting adventure. And yet, God's intervention came at precisely the right time. Those shepherds in that field were expecting a quiet night, free from danger, full of peace. And yet that intercession from the angels came at precisely the right time for them to have a divine encounter. And Mary and Joseph, all of the things of life that they were expecting, and yet God interrupted at precisely the right time time, a time that, by the way, fulfilled so many prophecies so that the world could know this was no accident. This was Jesus the Christ. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, we must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. We must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. And you know why he said that? He said that because when when God does the unexpected, he brings great things. And God has great things for us. He has gifts for us. And just like God delivered something unexpected and brought joy to 
to those shepherds. And just like God did something unexpected and delivered joy for Mary and Joseph, God has an unexpected joy for us. And God has an unexpected joy for you. So what is joy anyways? What is joy really? You know, the angel said, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And we just sang joy to the world, right? And you all see that on posters all the time at this time of year. Joy to the world. But what is joy really? You know, to the world, I think joy is almost kind of that, that manic state where you feel like you're walking on air and everything is coming up your way. Things are going well. All of the details, successes are, are, are part of your life story. And all of the, the circumstances of life, all of the conditions, are just what you would wish that they could be. I think that's what the world tells us joy is. But there's a danger in that, isn't there? There's a risk because if your joy, if your joy is conditional on things, what happens when those things change? If your joy is based on circumstances, what happens when your circumstances change? I mean, let's say, let's say that what gives you joy is great weather. What happens when the weather's not so great? Well, gosh, you might not feel quite the same joy. Or what happens if the weather's great, but you're stuck inside all day? You know, suddenly when the circumstances change, if your joy is based on circumstances, your joy changes. It might diminish or if the circumstances go away, your joy, your joy might go away too. You know, what the world has to offer in joy is not permanent. It's conditional, which is why we're always struggling to find it. But what the angels were talking about, this, this joy, what God is offering, joy to the world, is something profoundly different. And you can see it throughout the Bible. I picked just a few passages that show us this, but Galatians 5. Galatians 5 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. What we experience as a gift from God as we follow Him is, is joy. It's a gift from God. Or John 16, 24, Jesus said, Ask using my name and you will receive and you will have abundant Joy. Abundant joy. Psalm 1611. You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. I mean, what are the common threads here? Well, it's that God can fill us with joy. A joy in abundance, in excess of what we could get for ourselves. And the kind of joy that the angels were proclaiming, this is what they're talking about. Not a joy that we can engineer for ourselves, but a joy that God from his infinite supply has in bounty for us in such measure that it can fill us up and even spill over to the people around us. Isn't that crazy? It's not a conditional joy that runs out, but it's a joy that is never and of course, that doesn't mean that joy means that everything in your life is perfect or that there might not be struggle. Y'all know that. It's going to involve the unexpected. I love the way C.S. Lewis shows us some of the growing pains in life, even in the midst of the joy. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity wrote, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house, and at first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. 
He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he, God, he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up the towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little college, but he is building a palace. And he intends to come and live in it himself. Joy is not what we get from our circumstances. Joy is what we get, what we feel, what we receive from God as he unveils and reveals his plans for us and as we experience him more fully. And so then what is God's plan for you? Oh, I love the way C.S. Lewis put it there, that instead of a cottage, he's got a great palace for you. He's got great things for you. And I don't know all the, the details and all of the shapes of that palace in your life that he's working on, but I know that this isn't just a nice idea that C.S. Lewis came up with. I know that this is actually rooted in Scripture. In fact, in one of my favorite verses in the Bible, something the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.10. Paul wrote, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Have you ever seen a masterpiece before? You know, just a few weeks ago, Pastor Matt showed us one. He showed us a painting, The Starry Night by Vincent Van Gogh. You guys remember that? Yeah, it's a beautiful painting. Got a picture of it right here. And it's amazing. And you know, when I was younger, I, I grew up outside of D.C., and uh, this painting lives in New York City at MoMA. And they would do this thing where it was free to go once a month. And so some friends and I, we road tripped up to New York City to go to the museum. Uh, had a lot of free time on our hands, I guess. Uh, but it was an amazing thing because there's all these beautiful works of art. And we kind of meandered our way through and at one point saw this huge crowd of people. And when we got closer, we realized that they were all huddled around the starry night. And it's actually a surprisingly small painting, right? So you had to wait and I finally got up close to it. And the cool thing about getting close to a painting, normally when we see it, it just looks like this. We see it from straight on. It's the way I've seen it in books and on screens. But when I got close, I could get near the wall and I could look at it. And I noticed something I had never noticed before that maybe you can see in this picture. Do you see there in the moon how much paint is layered there? Do you see that? And do you see by the edges of the frame that you can see the canvas poking through? Not all of it's covered. Well, you know what? This was a shocking thing for me to see. Because my entire life, I had known that this was a painting. But I had never until that moment realized that someone had actually painted it. And I know you're thinking, like, that's the best revelation you've got. But this was a big thing for me. It was shocking, you know? Someone actually made that. Someone actually painted that. And I just sat there frozen because I had never contemplated what it actually took for Van Gogh to do that. I mean, think with me for a minute of what it, what it meant. I mean, Van Gogh had to pick a canvas, and he had to stretch the canvas. He had to prepare it. And then he had to pick out the paints that he was going to use. He might have mixed them himself, pigments and oils, to come up with just the colors that he wanted to use for his vision. And then what brushes? He had to pick the brushes. He might have even made his own brushes. That's not uncommon. 
And so now he had the brushes and the paints and the canvas. But everything was still blank before him, just a blank canvas, until he made that first brush stroke. And for a while, you want to know what it looked like? It looked like a mess, right? Have you ever seen a painting in process? It doesn't look like much of anything. Just some different colors on a canvas. And he was putting together brushstroke after brushstroke. And if you had been in that room watching this process unfold, you would have been astonished when he got to the end and had the starry night. Because you would have just seen what looked like a muddy mess the whole way through. Because you had no idea where he was going. But he did. And you know what it takes to make a masterpiece? It takes a master. Van Gogh knew where he was going at the beginning. He knew what he was doing. And he knew what he was putting together. And this, friends, this is what God is doing with us. He's the master. And we just saw in that scripture, we are God's masterpiece. And right now, your life may be messy. Right now, it may be hard to see how you're going to get anywhere good from where you are. But that's because you're not the master. God is. And he's got a view of where you're going and a view of where he wants, where he wants to take you. And he's got a plan even if you can't see it yet. And God's put us in a community like this so that we can experience and discover those plans together. In fact, we even get to contribute into that masterpiece work in each other's lives. It's a great joy of being a church together. So then how do we, how do we ready ourselves for the unexpected? How do we ready ourselves to step in to God's joy? And listen, this is not about being fearless because those shepherds, right? It is a tough job to be a shepherd. They were sleeping outside on the lookout for predators predatory animals in the dark that may have been there to threaten their flocks and even them. Shepherds are pretty brave people. And yet when the angels arrived, they were still terrified. No, it's not about being fearless, but it is about something that the shepherds understood, something that Mary and Joseph understood, and something that I think we can see in Acts 3, this beautiful little story. This is Acts 3, 2 through 10. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And as Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, they said, look at us. And the beggar, and he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Did you catch the secret in there? 
Did you catch what the lame man did? It's not that he had put himself in the right position that he had. It's not that he had asked for help though he had, and it's not that his expectations were too low though they were. No, what this man did is he fixed his attention on them. And my friends, that, that is our job, to fix our attention on God, because we cannot possibly know what God has in store for us, right? I mean, think about this story. A virgin birth, the Savior of the world born into a manger, angels appearing to a couple of kids from the suburbs, kind of in the middle of nowhere. Angels appearing to shepherds. We cannot possibly know what God has in store for us. And we cannot know the mind or the thoughts of God. It's right there in the Bible in 1 Corinthians. We cannot know God's thoughts, but we, we can know him. And he can know us. Jesus said, in John 10, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. So we can fix our gaze on Jesus and follow him wherever he leads. And where he takes us may not be comfortable. It may be scary. It may be terrifying. Because having walls knocked down can be pretty scary stuff. But wherever he leads and wherever we follow, we will experience the unexpected. And we will be filled, filled with the joy of the Lord, even in the midst of our mess. So, so fix your eyes upon Jesus. Embrace the unexpected. And be filled with God's joy. In a minute, the worship team is going to come out and lead us through a final song. And as they do, and as you worship, I want you to open your hearts to God. And I want you to listen. I want you to listen for him. What are the walls he's knocking down in your life? What's the mess he's calling you out of? What are the plans he's revealing to you? As you worship, listen, and fix your eyes on Jesus. Embrace the unexpected and get ready, get ready to be filled with God's joy.